It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, September 30th, the final day of September, 2021. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Live from Washington, D.C. and across the country and the world, we are glad you are listening. Every day from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, thank you. We are grateful. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is available there every day. It is free of charge. It is on demand. It is growing in popularity thanks to all of you. GuyBensonShow.com. On today's program, we'll get to our first guest momentarily. Later on, Larry Kudlow, host of Kudlow, former economic honcho in the Trump administration. He'll be here. Gregory Angelo will also be our guest in the middle hour you're going to want to hear about a new organization that he is leading. Many of you have expressed deep anger and frustration about runaway wokeness in this country and how these battles seem to often go the left's way with cancel culture, whatever you want to call it. There's a new group, the purpose of which is to, in a targeted and organized way, fight back. How can you be a part of it? We will ask Gregory Angelo about the new tolerance campaign. That's the name of the organization coming up in our next hour. In our final hour, Grover Norquist will be here talking about the Biden tax and spend agenda, which is uh, sort of on rocky ground as we come to the air today. We will get to all of that and more in just a moment. But first, a Fox News alert. Case count on coronavirus in the United States, 43.3 million. The estimates are well north of 150, 160 million, the real number there. The death toll from COVID in the United States is just growing inexorably towards 700,000. It is now 695,232. That's the death toll of Americans from COVID-19 in this pandemic. It's a yo-yo for the Dow and Wall Street this week, just up and down, roller coaster ride. Currently, the Dow is down after an up day yesterday in the red by 314 points. Right now trading just a hair over 34,000. We'll bring you updates later in the program as necessary. Another Fox News alert that I want to bring to your attention here. Some breaking news on Capitol Hill steps away from our studio here in Washington, D.C. The U.S. Senate has voted 65 to 35 in favor of a continuing resolution, so a short stopgap bill that would keep the government funded, the lights on, and avoid a partial government shutdown until early December. A relatively big bipartisan vote there, and the House will be debating that and voting later today on the same measure. It's expected to pass and go to the president. So of this whole mess that we've been talking about with multiple moving parts, the government funding, the debt ceiling, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the reconciliation Democrat-only spending bill, one of them has now been checked off, at least in the Senate and likely in the House, 
in a matter of minutes or hours. Now, the rest of it, very much up in the air still. And joining us now to help unravel some of these mysteries as best he can is Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, the 8th District in the Badger State. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee. He's a veteran himself. And Congressman, welcome back to the show. Great to have you. Good to be back. All right. I would like to talk about Afghanistan with you, and we will get to that in a moment. But first, your reaction to what we are seeing play out today in Congress. It's not really a lot of drama around this continuing resolution and keeping the government funded. That seems basically like a fait accompli. However, on the infrastructure bill, which passed the Senate on a bipartisan basis, Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, has called a vote today. She gave a press conference earlier, and I'll play some of the sound later this hour, saying they are moving forward with that plan. But the votes do not really look like they are lining up the way that Democratic leadership would need to get that passed out of the House, which could really unleash a bunch of chaos for the entire Biden agenda. What are you watching today, Congressman? What do you predict is going to happen based on what you're seeing as a Republican in your vantage point? On Capitol Hill. Well, I uh, to quote Yogi Berra, I never make predictions about the future. Uh, but um, yeah, I think the continuing resolution will pass. Even though I don't support continuing resolutions, I voted against them even when we were in charge. I think it's a failure of the budget process. Um, but it will likely pass because this is what Congress likes to do: wait to the last second and then just pass CRs. I don't know if we're going to have a vote on what's called the BIF, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework, because we've basically been locked in this game of chicken between the so-called Democratic moderates and the progressives in the Democratic caucus, and neither side wants to budge. And so let's say Nancy Pelosi put the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework on the floor later tonight and just called the vote. If all the progressives, which number between 30 and 50 members, held their vote because they want to force the caucus to support the bigger uh, reconciliation bill, I don't think there's enough Republicans that support the infrastructure bill to offset their votes. So until they can get the numbers they need to pass and they can't afford to lose more than three, uh, I don't see how that passes. And remember, she promised the moderate caucus, she promised uh, Congressman Gottheimer and others that she would put the infrastructure bill on the floor a few days ago. And then she extended yeah, the deadline, week. but she made them an explicit promise that they were going to get a vote on it. So, you know, well, but hang I on, though, Congressman, it's 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 worth pointing out. She also promised the progressives that she wouldn't call for a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure framework until after the Senate had passed the reconciliation Bill. So she's made a lot of promises and they've shifted. And I think both sides, both of these sort of groups within her caucus and these camps have heard things from her that feel like airtight promises and they are mutually exclusive. She cannot keep all of these promises like logistically. She can't. Yeah, I don't see how it works with that narrow of a margin. And, and she's it's not just the progressives are trying to put pressure on the moderates in the House. They're basically trying to pressure Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema into submitting. And thus far, Manchin seems to be holding firm. Now, what concerns me is that he'll say, okay, I don't support a $3.5 trillion bill, but I support a 2.5 or a 
a 2.0 trillion dollar bill and then everyone can claim they they got what they wanted and we'll still be left with bad progressive policy and a bunch of spending we don't need but i don't know it, it, you're right pelosi's made a lot of promises and i'm not sure she can keep all of them i will say however a note of caution i have in the past uh underestimated her ability to force compliance from her members she seems to have a remarkable knack for forcing people to vote her way uh, but i just don't see how this gets done so my ultimate prediction is the cr passes and then they punt on the bigger infrastructure versus reconciliation decision and yeah. she tries to work the problem over the next two weeks and we come back you know on december 18th or uh, right, they try 18th, again and they see if yeah, they might look a that. little it might get a little different or you know look different the numbers could come down and massage the thing ongoing conversations that's sort of where i am right now i appreciate by the way that you said that you don't make predictions then you made a prediction so thank you for doing that congressman we'll write that down a uh, gold star for you for going out there although again i, I think it's a pretty reasonable prediction that you've just laid out. Last question before we get back uh, to the issue that I teased earlier, Afghanistan, a hugely important one. When you stand back and you look at the Democratic Party, the Democratic leadership, they've been whipping votes, they've been working the phones, they are hopeful, and you alluded to this, that there will be enough Republicans who might go along with the bipartisan infrastructure bill to make up for some of the Democrats, the progressives that they could lose and maybe get this thing across the finish line. I am not dead set against the bipartisan bill. I see arguments in favor of it. I see arguments against it. I think that there's a reasonable disagreement that people can have on the right side of the aisle about that bill. However, I'm not sure I'm sold on Republicans lending their votes to Speaker Pelosi, given all of the struggles that she's having right now, why would any Republican vote in favor of this bill and basically toss a life preserver to Democratic leadership right now? Unless the argument is, look, it's on balance, decent legislation from their perspective, so they're not going to let politics uh, you know, dictate their, their ultimate voting decision. But it seems like Pelosi would never let her people give Republicans the last few votes they needed on a contested issue where the majority party was in turmoil, right? That's that's sort of where I'm wondering how Republicans are going to play this. Well, Republicans shouldn't give their votes. They should hold back until they muster the votes. It would be stupid to solve her problem for her, particularly since she is, if not the least bipartisan members of Congress. So for her to embrace a bipartisan infrastructure deal is, is not genuine. Um, and so I hope Republicans don't fall into that trap. And my one of my arguments against the infrastructure bill is that I view it as inextricably linked to the bigger reconciliation bill and in some ways a Trojan horse for that bill. And so to just say, oh, by supporting the infrastructure bill, you're killing reconciliation, as some Republicans are arguing, I think is naive. Maybe taking 3.5 down to 2.5 or 2, but at the end of the day, you're still supporting a bunch of bad policy. Add on to that that I just do not see aggressive regulatory reform in the infrastructure bill. And the primary problem with the way we award infrastructure dollars is that it gets funneled through a bunch of outdated regulatory reviews that makes our infrastructure cost a bunch of money. And then finally, I just say, when I came into Congress in 2017, the bipartisan framework that Trump wanted back then was something like $200 billion. 
and now the price tag has gone up to $1.2 trillion after we've spent trillions and trillions of dollars in the yeah. midst of coronavirus, no, much of which will be used for, for infrastructure. It just doesn't make sense to me. So I would make That's, both a, a, an argument on the merits against the bill as well as a process argument against helping Pelosi to pass the bill. Yeah, and those are compelling points that you make. Congressman, let's talk about Afghanistan. There was testimony this week in the House and the Senate, top military brass, also the defense secretary, about the disaster in Afghanistan and the Biden administration's withdrawal with uh, thousands of Americans and American allies stranded and abandoned behind in that country, now controlled by the Taliban. You used part of your questioning to press General McKenzie, for example, on the Taliban-Biden administration discussion and agreement on security in Kabul during the tail end of the withdrawal. Uh, Tell us about what you gleaned there and maybe some of your bigger takeaways from the testimony this week. Well, General McKenzie admitted in open testimony, I think for the first time, this has been reported by the Wall Street Journal and a few others, that the one of the Taliban units providing security around the Kabul airport was what's called uh, the Badri 313 organization, which is basically a Taliban unit that specializes in suicide bombing. So at the moment, we had a suicide bombing attack that killed, tragically, 13 service members. The people providing security around the airport were Taliban suicide bombers. Now, I'm not suggesting they let the suicide bomber in. I don't have evidence that uh, points in that direction. But at minimum, I think it points to one of the flaws in our withdrawal strategy, which is that we became entirely dependent upon the Taliban, an untrustworthy actor for security. And then the second thing Mackenzie confirmed to me when questioned is that he basically got an offer from Mullah Baradar, a Taliban leader, to take over all of Kabul and push the security perimeter out as opposed to just collapsing in on the airport. And he did not convey that offer to the president. He doesn't know if the president was given that offer. That's a significant thing because that's a key decision point. When the Taliban came to us and said, hey, we don't necessarily need to take over all Kabul right now as you guys are withdrawing. And we Mm -hmm. chose to ignore that. McKenzie said to me he didn't think it was legitimate. Um, I think we need to really dig into that decision because I think it was a bad decision. And finally, Guy, I would say you're you're seeing Milley and others try to hide behind this strategic uh, failure but logistical success. Even on just the logistical side, the operation of surrender and withdrawal itself, I think it was a massive failure. So for yes. the top brass to portray it, portray it as a success, I think is a lie. And, you know, I expect Biden to lie to us, but I don't expect four-star generals to lie to us. When I heard him say that what you just repeated, that it was strategically a failure but a, a success logistically, we left billions of dollars of equipment and weapons in the hands of a terrorist organization. That is not a logistical success. We left tens of thousands of Afghan allies behind after promising them we would not. That is not a logistical success. We left hundreds of U.S. citizens and thousands of other Americans behind with an explicit promise that we wouldn't do so from the president himself, instead evacuating lots of other people who should not have been necessarily at the front of the line because everything was so chaotic. That is not a logistical success. I think that part of Milley's formulation is on its face preposterous, but he said it. 
And I think you're right to call it out. Mike Gallagher, a military veteran, a congressman from Wisconsin, the 8th congressional district up there, a member of the Republican Party. Congressman Gallagher, always appreciated. Some of that background noise, by the way, during the interview, you're on your way to vote. So it's a very busy day on Capitol Hill. We know that. And we appreciate you carving out some time for us here. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. We are just getting rolling here on this Thursday. It's the Guy Benson Show. So much to get to. Don't go anywhere. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So high stakes and high drama here on Capitol Hill today. Will the Democrats in the House actually pass this infrastructure bill with progressives in open revolt? Dozens of them saying that they will defy Speaker Pelosi, saying that she is betraying them by even holding this vote. And we mentioned sort of the sequencing problem in the last segment with Congressman Gallagher. Early this afternoon, Pelosi addressed reporters, took a few questions, and she's still sort of putting on a happy face here. Cut four. Listen to this. We're on a path to win the vote. I don't want to even consider any options other than that. That's just the way it is. And that's that's our culture. You don't understand that culture. You don't understand that culture. But that's our culture. We go in it to win it. We're on a path, she said, to win the vote. You don't understand our culture. Now, what she means by that is Nancy Pelosi has cultivated a reputation through results, by the way, that she does not bring a vote to the floor and lose. If she's in charge, if she's a speaker and there's a vote on the floor of the House, you can take it to the bank that the Democrats have the votes or she has the votes necessary to pass it. That's how she operates as speaker, which is very frustrating if you're a conservative. But she's not saying that she has the votes. Yet. They keep insisting for now the vote is still on, but other members of leadership are telling reporters, we're not so sure. Could they end up yanking this bill off the floor? Because as of now, they don't have the votes, but the vote is still scheduled. What is going to happen? Because it could have a cascading effect of failure on the whole Biden agenda with the Democrats at war with each other. I see this going a few different ways, a few options. What's the likeliest option and what are the problem points for Democratic leadership? We will break it all down with some amazing quotes from Joe Manchin. You want to hear it all. It's next on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show, I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. All right, so here's where things stand on Capitol Hill. The Democrats and Republicans have passed 
a government funding bill to at least keep the lights on until December 3rd. Out of the Senate, the House is voting on that right now. Up later is this infrastructure vote in the House. It's already passed the Senate, bipartisan vote, close to 70 votes. President Biden wants it. He wants to sign it, but he's not taking any leadership here because there's a big fight within the Democratic Party. The liberals, the hardcore progressives, I mean, they're all liberals, but the hardcore progressives, they want this even bigger spending bill to come first because they don't trust the so-called moderates to spend quite as much money as they want if they get their bipartisan deal first. And Pelosi had sided with those progressives, with the left-wingers, for weeks and weeks, and then she changed her tune. She said, okay, we're going to bring up this vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and that's supposed to be today, and at least the line officially is they're still going to vote on it. But it looks very much like they do not have the votes to pass it. And I think Congressman Gallagher was right about that early on. So what's going to actually happen later this afternoon or evening as we watch very carefully? To me, it's one of three options. It's pretty simple. Number one, they'll put the vote on the floor in the House and it will pass. In order for that to happen, almost all the Democrats are going to have to get together and vote yes. And then some Republicans will have to vote yes as well in all likelihood to patch together. I think they need 217. Usually it's 218 to get this done today. Now, there are dozens of progressives who have said, no, we are not going to accept this. Our demand is there has to be a reconciliation bill passed from both chambers before we go on to the bipartisan stuff. That's our red line. If they stick to that red line, they have no chance of passing this thing today. So for option one to work out, A bunch of progressives who've been making a lot of noise, rattling the sabers, threats and all this stuff would have to just walk away from all of those threats. Say, never mind. Yes, Nancy, we'll do what you want. Now, if they do that, they have to know that they are completely exploding their credibility when it comes to leverage in the future. Right. If you say we are hard nosed, we are not going to do this. We are not voting for this unless, you know, you do A, B, or C. And then when push comes to shove, there's a vote. And, you know, they abandon that position and retreat en masse. Then no one's going to take them seriously down the line if they try similar power plays. So for that reason, I'd be surprised. Is it impossible? No. Could Pelosi pull another statist rabbit out of her hat? Yes, she could. But today, I'm not sure I'm betting on that. The second option of three is to have the vote. Whether they're not sure if they have what it takes to get to a majority or if they know for a fact that they don't, but still hold the vote anyway. Now, Pelosi, I think, would be loath to attempt this. She hates to lose. She has this point of pride that she never loses, as a matter of fact. When that vote is on the floor, she's got it won. It's in the bag. That is the way that she has been speaker But today could be different. Number one, they might just sort of have this hazy sense of where people are and a hazy sense that, you know, maybe if a few things break the right way and we twist some arms, maybe we can do it. Maybe we'd be surprised, but let's just try. I think more likely in this second scenario, they know that they're probably going to fail, but they they don't want to, but they believe that it would be instructive and would illustrate a lesson 
for their own party, saying, "Okay, all right, progressives. Okay, dozens of people in the Democratic Party, we are putting something that the president wants to sign into law up for a vote. You've now torpedoed it. It failed. You've had your temper tantrum. How does that feel? Feeling good? Now what? All right, you could go out there, you could vote no. Now we have failed. You smell that? Smell that stench of failure? How does that feel to you? And by the way, now what? What's your next move? They might want to demonstrate through a failed vote. And this happened, by the way, under Republican leadership in recent years. This would happen from time to time. Right. The Freedom Caucus would get mad and they would put something up and it would go down and say, "Okay, we tried it your way. You said no. Now what? It could be kind of like a wake up call. Let's lick our wounds. Let's regroup and figure out what happens next. So that's option two. Option one. The bill passes somehow. Option two, they put it up for a vote and it fails. Option three, they talk like they're going to have the vote all the way up to the last minute. And then they know that actually, deep down, this is not going to work out. We don't want to suffer this setback. We don't want to have the formal blow of holding a vote and losing. So we're going to postpone indefinitely and punt into the future. Never mind, no vote today. And Pelosi told us yesterday, as a reminder, I do have that authority to do it. And then she could say, well, you know, we weren't quite there and we have productive ongoing conversations and there is no need to rush this. You could sort of spin it a little bit. I would still be ugly for them, maybe less ugly than straight up losing the vote. So those are the three options. Based on everything that I know, based on everything that I'm hearing and then reading between the lines which I try to do for you here on the show, if I were a betting man and I had, you know, piles of chips at the poker table, I might put 70% of my chips on option three, that they're going to postpone this thing, that the vote won't happen today. That's the likeliest situation. And Congressman Gallagher, that was also his conclusion, as he mentioned earlier in the show. I'd put maybe 20% of my chips on the possibility of having a vote to prove a point and the vote going down. And then, if my math is correct, I've got 10% left. I put the remainder of those chips on a trick up the sleeve and they somehow pass this thing today. It's not impossible, but I think it's improbable. And part of the reason that it's so improbable is what has happened in the last 24 hours with Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, and also Kirsten Cinema who is uh, his moderate colleague, she's from Arizona, Manchin has made a few things very clear that I think completely explode the possibility of some sort of special deal being struck on reconciliation at the 11th hour in order to get this infrastructure bill done today. And by the way, I recognize these are a lot of different things that are happening and it can be confusing, so I'm trying to speak as clearly and intentionally as I can with specificity. But Manchin on the reconciliation, so this is the Democrat-only spending, where the progressives are saying it's $3.5 trillion or more. It has to be. That's our absolute floor. Manchin has kept saying over and over again, no, it's not going to be that much. He told National Review last night that he will not accept any reconciliation bill that includes a violation of the Hyde Amendment, which is taxpayer funding of abortion. Joe Biden used to be on board with that, right? He had the same position against taxpayer funding of abortion. Then he flip-flopped to run for president. 
abandoning his career-long so-called principle on that issue. Joe Manchin has not abandoned that principle. He said if they send a bill across that includes taxpayer funding of abortion or doesn't include Hyde Amendment protections, it's dead on arrival in the Senate. I will personally end it. So that is not going to make the progressives happy. He also put out a statement Manchin did yesterday that was extremely critical of where the reconciliation process is now, what the left wants to do in the progressives. He said it is fiscal insanity. He does not want to, quote, re-engineer the social and economic fabric of this nation or vengefully tax. I mean, this sounds like he is nowhere close to being where the progressives want him to be. He said, I cannot and will not support trillions, plural, in spending. He said, there has to be a better way. We'll continue to negotiate. And when he was asked last night, hey, uh, do you think a deal could be cut in time for tomorrow's reconciliation discussion than the infrastructure vote? He said, no, just straight up. No, it's not possible. Now, something else very interesting happened earlier today. Politico got a hold of a memo that Manchin had put together and signed, and Chuck Schumer also signed it back in July, which laid out the various demands of what Joe Manchin said he would be willing to do in a Democrat-only partisan spending bill. Because one of the knocks on him in cinema is, oh, they won't negotiate. They won't really say what they want. They're just against everything. Well, actually, Manchin put it all in writing and gave it to Schumer, and Schumer signed it. Schumer's office saying, well, that wasn't agreeing to it. It was just acknowledging, okay, if you know that one of your members is saying, I'm not going to do much more than X, and then you publicly announce Z, I know the goal is to get to Y at some point, but you can't pretend, as many people have, that Manchin and Cinema, oh, they've, they've got nothing, they've offered nothing. No, they, at least in Manchin's case, has laid it out. And by the way, his top line number, the total dollar spend, that he's talking about in this document, $1.5 trillion. So he's $2 trillion away from where the progressives are, $2 trillion. And these numbers are just nuts. Just as an aside, the numbers are insane. Even $1.5 trillion is crazy. It's double the Obama stimulus, that huge, wasteful, shovel-ready jobs. Remember that whole thing, 09? Take that, double it. That's Manchin's position, which is the moderate position among Democrats these days. And they're so mad at him in cinema about it. But he was not willing to do a bunch of the tax increases. This document is fascinating, and the progressives are going to be pretty angry when they see it because one of their talking points goes away. They've been saying, well, we're mad because they won't tell anyone what they actually want. Well, As we've noted, he put it in writing and Schumer signed the damn piece of paper, $1.5 trillion, a lower corporate tax rate than what the Democrats are talking about now. They are so far apart. And what the progressives in the House are saying, and they've insisted again today, we have not budged. Our position is the same. If there's a vote on infrastructure, the bipartisan gig, before we get all of our spending on reconciliation, we're going to kill it. We don't care if Biden wants it. We don't care about any of this stuff. We need the leverage, so we are going to kill the infrastructure bill if they put it up the way they're saying. So I don't see how they get around that unless these progressives are just going to cave in a mass humiliation. 
and surrender their leverage basically forever. My guess is Manchin leaked this document to Politico. I mean, this is like heavy artillery stuff because he wants to make clear to all the people who are following this, all the political nerds, especially the progressives who are harassing him and cinema. Oh, why don't you tell us anything? You're not doing this in good faith. Why won't you tell us what you want? He's like, well, guess what? I told the leader what I want, and he even signed it. Here it is. You're not going to like it, but here it is. And surprise, they're not reacting well. They were whining that he wouldn't put anything on paper or wouldn't propose anything. Then he said, actually, I did behind closed doors. Now I've leaked it to the world. What do you think? Well, we hate it. All right. Now, Pelosi over on the House side said something very interesting. She's saying, oh, you know, we're still making progress toward winning the vote. We're on we're on a path to win it. I think that's happy talk, although you never know. She said, there's a lot of dancing around. We're not going to do nothing. There's going to be all the things. You just wait. You know, think positively, she was saying to the reporters, trying to rally her base, the journalists. Don't get too sad, fellow liberals. We're working on it. But she also said this in cut two. Listen carefully. I just told uh, members of my leadership that the reconciliation bill was a culmination of my service in Congress. The reconciliation bill is a culmination of my service in Congress. That sounds like she might be headed for the exits after 2022, either from Congress altogether or from leadership. Maybe she recognizes that Republicans are in good position to win the House back. She might start to frame this thing as her swan song, her going away present to the country, a huge, massive left wing, unsustainable, unaffordable spending bill. That adds not just the ideological pressure, but then some personal loyalty pressure as well. Like, this is my legacy as speaker. Are you really going to screw this up? I think that is very interesting. As for Senator Manchin, reporters are following him around just in in droves. There's just like a pack of 100 people permanently following him around with microphones And he just wanted to make clear, I know you're going to keep pressuring me and the left is going to keep pressuring me and they're going to tweet very angrily. However, at the end of the day, this is his view of things in Cut 20. I don't fault any of them who believe that they're much more progressive and much more liberal. God bless them. And all they need to do is we have to elect more, I guess, for them to get theirs, elect more liberals. But don't, I'm not asking them to change. I'm willing to come from zero to one five. He's basically saying there, to paraphrase Senator Manchin, I went from $0 to $1.5 trillion. That's my compromise that I've already done. And if the liberals aren't happy with it, then they can elect some more liberals and pass liberal stuff. But I'm not one of them, and I have the deciding vote, and so you're going to play ball with me, you're going to get nothing. I mean, that's the message that he's sending, and what enrages the progressives is they know He's right, and there's nothing they can do about it except try to go out and win more elections with a bunch of libs. And I would say conservatives need to say, absolutely, hell not. Let's fight tooth and nail to make sure that they never have enough progressives to do this type of stuff on their own. And that starts in 2022. It starts in Virginia in a few weeks, and it starts in 2022 in the House and Senate because we know with a razor thin majority what they're trying to do. Imagine if they had a cushion. I shudder thinking about that. 
elections have consequences and conservatives have to vote because it's scary enough with the margins that we're currently seeing. But it's also scary for the leadership on the Democratic side. I don't know where this is going, but apparently Steny Hoyer, the number two, the House Majority Leader, was asked about this. Are you confident the infrastructure bill will pass tonight? His response, quote, nope, we shall see. It's the Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, an extremely busy day here in Washington, D.C., and to that end, a Fox News alert. The House of Representatives has passed the continuing resolution that we mentioned earlier that had passed the Senate. Both were bipartisan votes, 65-35 in the Senate. In the House, it was 254 yes, 175 no. A few dozen Republicans Across the aisle with Democrats to keep the government opening uh, open rather with this short bill that will fund the government until early December. So a Band-Aid. This is no way to budget. This is no way to govern, but it's how they govern in this town under both parties. But the threat of a partial shutdown has been pushed back. For, you know, a couple months. So that clears the decks. For the infrastructure vote. Is that going to actually happen today? Do they have the votes? Is Speaker Pelosi staring at a loss on the House floor inconceivable under her leadership? Very possible. We are watching it very closely here on The Guy Benson Show. Larry Kudlow comes up next on The Guy Benson Show with his take. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show from the Tony Snow radio studio in Washington, D.C. Glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And around the clock for free at GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast, no charge to you, on demand. All of the resources about the program at GuyBensonShow.com. And now through the magic of radio and television and Fox News, we bring in Larry Kudlow, who is currently hosting Kudlow on Fox Business Network on the TV side. He is the former director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. And Larry, it is great to have you back. Thank you, Guy. Good to be here. Appreciate it. I would love to start with your thoughts on inflation and spending, because we saw the Fed chair come out in the last couple of days and warn that, in fact, perhaps inflation, shock of all shocks, may not be as transitory, quote unquote, as the Biden administration had assured us it would be. And I think a pretty significant and I think easy to digest example of inflation and the impact it's having is the report this week that Dollar Tree, the dollar store, is now feeling forced to sell items for above $1. Even Senator Manchin was citing that as a clear-cut example in comments to reporters earlier today about his concerns on inflation. I know the Biden people are hoping this is all very temporary, will move quickly, but maybe that's not happening. And they're also contemplating signing trillions of more dollars worth of spending into law on top of everything. Well, look, inflation is a problem. 
it's partly a problem because of the pandemic and the various supply shortages. Right. It's partly a problem because of overly generous government benefits, which have kept people out of work. There's a lot of unfilled jobs out there, actually 11 million unfilled jobs, to be precise. And um, partly a function of excessive federal spending, and the Federal Reserve has been financing it. Fed's been buying up all the bonds in the debt market uh, and adding about $4 trillion. But I got to tell you, Guy, the big, big story is you mentioned Manchin. Manchin has, in my, my view, effectively killed the reconciliation bill. He's just killed it. He put out a dramatic statement last night. Uh, he's not going to accept this. He thinks it's too much spending. The economy is, uh, doesn't need it. The economy is doing fine. Inflation is the problem, and it's killing middle-class people. More spending uh, will generate higher inflation. He's got a great point there. Also, he does not want an entitlement state. He understands full well that all these transfer payments and welfare payments and new entitlements that are in this so-called $4 trillion budget, uh, none of them have any work requirements. I would add to that they don't have any education requirements. No work requirements cuts to the heart of our social fabric. Work is a virtue. Uh, Manchin recognized that. There's no opportunity without work. And he wants work requirements put in, and he also wants strict eligibility requirements. You know, people can get three, four $400,000 a year uh, making that kind of money, can get part of these benefits. It's a crazy story. And I think he's also got problems. He is from a coal state with all the Green New Deal stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I tell you, right, right now, reconciliation fails in the Senate, 52-48. It's dead. Absolutely dead. Wow. So your projection or your prediction is that it's not going to pass at all, not even a significantly pared down version of it? Well, you know, there's talk now, and, and he said this, Manson said this a while ago, that his top line number could not be higher than $1.5 trillion. Right. So you've got a pretty wide gulf between $4 trillion in the House Budget Committee and $1.5 But do you think and it would come down, let's say let's say it came down to 1.5, or let's say 2, if he comes up a little bit further, do the progressives kill that, or do they finally get together and decide something is better than nothing? It's still trillions, Larry. I mean, this is the thing. The Obama stimulus in 09 was, what, $800 billion and people freaked out because it was, at the time and still today, an astonishing amount of money. We're talking about double that here, and that's being sort of dismissed as this totally insufficient, quote-unquote, conservative dollar amount. It's sort of breathtaking, actually. No, it's absolutely crazy. By the way, I don't want any of it. Even if it were $1.5 trillion, I would say save America, kill the bill. Kill the bill. Kill oh, I, of course. Of course I'm with you. I just recognize people who think like us are not in charge of Washington, D.C. right now. They have the House, they have the Senate, they have the presidency. All of that is you know narrow and precarious, but they do have the votes, at least in theory, to do something. I still think they're going to do something. But if we zoom out, Larry... Because something that you said sparked a thought, and I've made this point before, but I think it's worth driving home. We are facing headwinds on inflation, and that is really hurting families across the country. People are seeing the cost of things that they need to buy and services go up. And looking at that, and you're right that there are multiple factors feeding into that phenomenon. One of them is overspending, and the Democrats say, well, let's spend trillions more. Relatedly, but on a separate element of the economy, growth projections have been tempered and sort of dialed back. From the very rosy numbers, which I think we should have been able to hit coming out of this pandemic related recession, all we had to do was bounce back to the roaring Trump Republican economy of 2019. They just had to sort of get out of the way. That has not happened. And a lot of the numbers on jobs and growth, they've been disappointing. 
And the Democrats look at that potential problem and they say, or it's not a potential problem, it's, it's a real problem playing out right now. They say, well, let's raise taxes now on businesses, on job creators, on families. That's their solution always. But it seems particularly ill-timed given the circumstances. Yeah, well, the kind of tax hikes that were in the House Ways and Means, Mark, would kill the economy. Just throw a wet blanket over it. I mean, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. They should have left it alone. I mean, actually, the optimal policy for future growth uh, would have been to make the Trump tax cuts permanent. The corporate tax cut is permanent, but the individual tax cuts expire in a couple of years and expensing of equipment expires in a couple of years. They should have made the whole thing permanent. But look, I just want to say on the other matter, the top line number here is not really as important as what would be in a skinny deal. And here's where I really like what Manchin said in his statement from last night. He wants all these eligibility requirements to be tightened up. You know, he's in favor of a safety net, as I am. But what they've got in there now is a massive handout of middle-class entitlements. And he's exactly right. That has to be changed. It has to be taken out of the bill. And I don't think it will be. I don't think the uh, left wing of the Democratic Party, which is to say the Democratic Party, will tolerate that. And he's also, incidentally, issuing some caution on tax hikes. I mean, he's, he had a line in there about how people have to fair, pay their fair share, but the U.S. has to remain competitive. And he singled out small business tax hikes as something that would be uh, very damaging. So I think he's um, wouldn't buy into the big tax increases, and he's not going to buy into the big spend. And neither is uh, let's not forget Kirsten Cinema, Senator Cinema of Arizona, who some people are saying is the new John McCain of Arizona, uh, which I kind of like actually. McCain, a very ornery guy and a, a good friend of mine down through the years. But she said she's opposed to Well, except in Larry, when when he would break with the Republican Party, right? He was a hero in the media. He was a maverick, a fierce, independent country over party. When she does it, a lot of those same people in the media are treating it like a betrayal because ultimately they're a bunch of progressives. They want her to vote the way they think she ought to as a fellow Democrat. That's the difference. No, I think she's got a pretty strong backbone from what I've seen. Yeah. She was in the White House, what was it, three Three times on Tuesday, once yesterday, and they're going up to see her. But I'm just saying that um, internally, I think the conditions set by Mansion and Cinema will not be met, and that's why I'm arguing that the, this version of the reconciliation bill is dead. I think that's mm-hmm. a real good thing. Now they got to write a budget at some point. The continuing resolution will probably pass the Senate. That gets them to the third of December guy. But, you know, they've got to still write a budget for FY22. And I'm just saying Manchin's pause strategy is going to be fulfilled because it's going to take them a long while, many, many weeks to rewrite this budget, which is what's going to have to happen. Well, and he also said separately yesterday that he is going to insist that any reconciliation or spending bill maintain the Hyde Amendment, which does not allow taxpayer funding of abortion. We know that that's going to be very, very angering to the hardcore progressives. I mean, there are some real bumps along the road here still ahead. And Democratic leadership, I don't think that they have a handle on it. I think that's pretty clear so far today and this week. Larry, I do want to ask you about this, and I know you've talked about it already. I can't get enough of it because I think they have overplayed their hand. The Democrats have so egregiously and in such a ridiculous over-the-top way with this talking point. 
that trillions of dollars actually cost nothing. It's zero dollars. And I just wonder, when you were on Team Trump and you were in the White House, if you guys had cooked up some policy and you decided to come out with a straight face and, you know, send out Kayleigh McEnany or whatever and President Trump to say, well, really, if you think about it, this costs nothing. It's zero dollars. How do you think that would have gone over with all the fact checkers? Not well. Not well. I mean, it's a matter of arithmetic. Even in the current House markup of reconciliation, uh, they were at least $2 trillion short. And by the way, those revenue estimates on higher taxes will never pan out mm-hmm. because the, the, Laffer, the Laffer curve kicks in. You get less growth and you get much more tax avoidance. But it's a joke. And I'm amazed that the main, well, no, I'm not amazed that the mainstream media didn't jump on it. We jumped on it. Conservatives jumped on it. I spend a lot of time on our Fox Business show jumping on it. It's just utter nonsense. And by the way, that will impact mansions and cinemas uh, discussions. You're not going to tax your way into prosperity, and you're not going to entitle your way into prosperity. And you want to get more people back to work with the appropriate incentives. And um, I think these things are splitting the Democratic Party, and that's why I think the whole thing is dead. I mean, let's face it. They won by a tiny right, just 50-50 in the Senate, and they have three or four seats in the House. And here they are trying to produce transformational legislation, which the country does not support. And so yeah, you would think that they have 60 senators, right? And f- like a 40 yeah. seat majority in the House, a 60 Senate, you yeah. know, filibuster proof majority. That's the way they're governing. That's the way they're governing. Like they've got some gigantic mandate from the American people when the last, gosh, how many election cycles? We haven't had really a big mandate election where it was clear cut since maybe 08. And yet they're like, hey, we've got these narrow, teeny, microscopic majorities. Let's just go for it. And that strategy maybe looks okay on paper, but then it gets messy when it comes down to actual people voting for actual provisions in actual legislation as the leadership of that party is unhappily rediscovering this week, it would seem. You know, the big, big mistake Biden made, and it was repeated in the House and Senate, is marking up these giant bills without any Republican inputs. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a guy who talked about unity, you know, six or eight months ago, we've seen none of that. It's an extremely divisive process guy. You know, going back over a year when I was still in government, we passed the first major relief bill, pandemic relief bill, in uh, March of uh, 2020. And that got overwhelming bipartisan support. We did not have to use reconciliation. And even though it was harder, in late 2020, we got another bill for relief. uh, And that was done without reconciliation. We did that by getting the normal majorities. You know, the handwriting was on the wall when the Bidens and their allies had to use reconciliation last March because they couldn't craft a bipartisan bill. And frankly, they had no interest in it. They didn't try. So now... That chicken has come home to roost here because uh, because of Manchin and because of cinema. And um, I'm interested to see how the House votes on these things, because I think there's going to be a lot of dissenters also. But if you yeah, want- in the days and weeks to come, Larry, and you mentioned President Biden is Mr. Unity. What a quaint notion that is. We've come a long way in these few months and not in the right direction, in my estimation. Larry Kudlow, host of Kudlow on Fox Business Network, airing right now, actually. And we're just using the dark arts of radio and television to make this happen. He, of course, served under President Trump as the director of the National Economic Council. Larry, always a pleasure to see you on TV next week, I believe. Good. We we'll look forward to it, guy. Come on set. I get lonely. Come on set. <laughs>
Sounds good. Thank you, sir. And we'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Panama officials warning that a larger caravan of Haitian migrants are headed to the U.S. The country's foreign minister warning that as many as 60,000 migrants are making their way through Central America right now. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, that was Tout Pyro on Fox News earlier today. And he was reporting what Panamanian officials are warning about. So you've got the government of Panama keeping tabs on things. And they believe up to 60,000 migrants are on their way to the southern border currently. This comes on the heels of the debacle in Del Rio, where tens of thousands of Haitian illegal immigrants came into the United States. Ten to 12,000 or more of them were allowed to stay in the United States pending court dates. We know that many of them will not show up for those court dates. This is how the number of illegal immigrants swells and swells in the United States especially with the Biden team announcing openly in these first months of the presidency that they are going to drastically reduce expulsions, deportations, even among illegal immigrants convicted of additional crimes, which still gets my goat and shocks me every time I think about that announcement, that they would say that openly. They have a please come in sign, a welcome mat. At the southern border for illegal immigrants. And again, a lot of these Haitians that were in Del Rio, they already had received asylum or refugee status in other countries in South America. They weren't trying to get out of a dire situation in their home country, right, where they were facing persecution or life and death issues. They already had asylum. They just want to come here. They do not have a right to be here, but this is what the Biden administration has unleashed. And with record highs, I mean, decade highs over the summer in illegal immigration encounters at the southern border, tens of thousands of gotaways every single month. And more people on the way because they've learned the lesson, right? They have internalized the message coming out of Washington, notwithstanding the words and the rhetoric. The actions are what matter. And people are recognizing if you come here and you get here, there's a good chance you can stay. And by the way, if you bring kids, you've got an even better chance. There was a problem during the Trump administration midway through with similar dynamics. And what did they do? They worked with Mexico and the Northern Triangle governments, and they worked out plans through diplomacy, a series of policies that massively curtailed the problem. You might say that one of the signature pieces of that puzzle was the remain in Mexico policy. It worked incredibly well. Biden trashed it. The Supreme Court actually overrode it, saying the way that Biden got rid of that was not constitutional. And the Department of Homeland Security now putting out a statement in the last 24 hours, they are working on a new way to abandon the successful Trump era remain in Mexico policy. They are taking a gift, which is the Supreme Court allowing them to go back to remain in Mexico, which was working. They are taking that political gift and they are trying to get rid of it anyway because they are so committed to this open borders agenda. I don't know what else to call it. They are okay with what's happening. They are in favor of illegal immigration. Their actions speak volumes, including this one from DHS. 
The former DHS secretary under President Trump, Chad Wolf, he's been on this show, tweets this in response. Quote, this is unreal. DHS is focused on terminating the Remain in Mexico program again after the courts told them to restart the program and despite its effectiveness. It's like they are trying to fail. It is, isn't it? It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. On this Thursday, it's The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. We welcome to the program Gregory Angelo, who is the president of a group called the New Tolerance Campaign, and you are going to want to hear about this group. This is something that I've been sort of discussing behind the scenes for a while, and it goes to a theme on this program and a frustration that I know for a fact many of you have been feeling for quite some time. And it deals with pushing back against the aggressive, woke left. Gregory was president for years of the Log Cabin Republicans, And now he is leading this new organization, which, again, is called the New Tolerance Campaign. Gregory, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks very much for having me today, Guy. All right. So I want to talk about the latest initiative that you have launched at New Tolerance Campaign involving critical race theory and this sort of racial poison that's being peddled in academia, corporate America, and that sort of thing. But before we get into any specifics, if you would... Please explain to our audience what the New Tolerance Campaign is, what the mission is, and how you guys go about carrying out that mission. It would be my pleasure. The New Tolerance Campaign is a new nonprofit organization that was founded to really reset the scales when it comes to uh, the political discourse in our country, one that is, over the course of recent years especially, has been dominated by the woke mob, uh, a leftist orthodoxy that is ever-changing, and a culture that has created a climate where cancel culture is a thing, where conservative voices are pushed by the wayside, if not outright silenced entirely. And there are a lot of great people out there and a lot of great organizations that are speaking out against cancel culture, and that's great, but... The only way to turn the tide is to attack cancel culture at its root cause. And that root cause guy is the institutions all across the United States that have created the climate where cancel culture is something that is acceptable. And when I talk about institutions, I'm talking about big tech. I'm talking about woke corporate boards. I'm talking about once great activist nonprofits like the ACLU that have entirely abandoned their stated mission and embrace the leftist ideology and really democratic talking points entirely and have really just become tools of the of the dnc to the detriment mm-hmm. of conservatives and conservative thought and so well, and, and even to the detriment does, of their own supposed values that they've held forever like the aclu used to really believe in civil liberties and increasingly they seem not to they seem interested in wokeness and progressive politics and the other stuff their founding principles are sort of secondary Totally. And and that's really what we get with the New Tolerance campaign. 
It's the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy that you see across the board. And while it's important to point out hypocrisy, uh, I think that there's now a growing movement of people that want to take action. And so New Tolerance Campaign activates the grassroots army to raise their voices together. You know, people to date have kind of shaken their fist at the sky, maybe put out a tweet on social media talking about how disgusted they are with the current cultural climate. But what New Tolerance Campaign does, it, it allows people to come together in what is really a clearinghouse of people who are fed up with cancel culture and people are allowed to send messages directly to the CEOs of these woke corporations. Right. So it's it's organization. This is the key. Just to jump in, Gregory, this is about organization and channeling that frustration into something constructive. And I just want to take a moment to remind everyone something that made me so angry on this show was the decision of Major League Baseball to yank the All-Star game out of Atlanta because of a bunch of left-wing lies about the election bill, now law, in that state, where Major League Baseball caved to a bunch of angry, woke activists who were yelling and screaming and talking about Jim Crow, and the president himself contributed to this, Joe Biden, saying it was worse than Jim Crow. He endorsed the boycott of the All-Star game or relocating the All-Star game, and there were companies in Georgia that were hurt because of this, at least for a period of time. The state was hurt, and this was based on garbage, based on misinformation from the left. But you have a bunch of these institutions, companies, organizations, universities, what have you. They cower in fear of these people. They are organized. They are relentless. They have an outsized voice. They make it seem like their radical agenda is shared by far more Americans than it actually is. And we've seen them rack up victory after victory to the detriment of the country. And whether you want to call it cancel culture or something else, it is insidious, it is pernicious, it is toxic, and it has driven me absolutely crazy. And I at least have a platform to come on the air and talk about it, maybe even rant about it from time to time, and warn that this is really bad for the country. But I've heard from so many of you out there saying, what can we actually do? Right? We're mad. Do we try to boycott just in our own lives? And I'm not a big fan of boycotts. And you get into counter boycotts. It gets so exhausting, right? It sort of crushes your soul every time you get into it. Isn't there something that can be done where we can use similar tools not to bully companies into becoming right-wing organizations that agree with us, just try to pressure them into being neutral, not siding against conservatives or America or whatever it might be time and time again to satisfy these braying hyenas on the woke left. This was what I heard from you. And this is something that I've been working on privately with some friends and making contacts. And out of the blue one day, Gregory contacted me and said, I want to have dinner and talk about this new tolerance campaign initiative that I'm now spearheading. And I wanted to make sure, Gregory, that we brought you on the show because I think that there is a thirst for something precisely like this where people can get in touch with you, sign up, give you their email. And then how does it work exactly? Do you guys send out email blasts where you say if you want to make your voice heard on this, X company and X CEO is under pressure to do whatever, and we're going to push back from the other direction. Here's the phone number. Here's the email. How does this work? If people find this appealing, if people want to get involved with New Tolerance Campaign and become a foot soldier and actually take action in some sort of organized way, what can they do and how does it work? That's a great question. It varies from campaign to campaign, but really it comes down to petitions, which are good. And also we we use a platform that allows 
on a case-by-case basis, people to send emails directly to key decision makers at some of these woke corporations and, and, and deans of universities and executive directors at activist nonprofits. For example, you talked about the, uh, this latest campaign, you teased the latest campaign that we're engaging in. It's a partnership with Chris Rufo about the critical race theory trainings that CBS Health was requiring of tens of thousands of its employees. Well, if people don't like that, if they don't like hearing that CVS is trying to indoctrinate its wage and hour employees while their CEO makes 618 times the median salary of any CVS health employee wagging his finger at them and telling them that uh, they are privileged, well, they can, they can send a message now directly to the CEO of CVS Health via our website. People can go to newtolerance.org. Right on our homepage, you can see the CVS Health campaign that we're engaging in. It, it takes five seconds. You can just fill out the, the pre-populated form that we have. It's an email that goes directly to the current CEO of CBS Health, Karen Lynch, letting her know that you're fed up with CBS pushing and trying to indoctrinate its employees, and you're happy to take your business elsewhere, elsewhere until and unless she makes a statement saying that Right, CBS especially Health- if you're a CVS customer, which I am, right? Because I think this is part of the game. And we can either lay down our arms and unilaterally disarm and say, well, you know, the left does these pressure campaigns and it's sort of unseemly and we don't like that sort of thing. Or we can get together and recognize a lot of these decisions are made out of fear. And they've come to the calculation that ticking off the hard left will come at a greater cost, maybe not even to their business, but their image, getting harassed online, you know, not just social media, but sort of pop culture. They don't want to cross the hard left because they get so much more grief and pushback when they do that. And I think the only way or one of the only ways to combat that is for conservatives to say, okay, if this is the rule, if this is what we're going to do now, if this is how you guys demonstrate you make decisions and you telegraph what you respond to, we are going to target you in a very similar way, just from the opposite position. Because as long as they're kind of floating along, only scared, quote unquote, of one side, it's going to continue the way it is on a trajectory that I think none of us view as acceptable. And so, Gregory, people can go, as you were saying, to newtolerance.org. And what's the next step? You can go to, go to our homepage, see the, the current campaigns that we're engaging on, like I said, people can engage on the CVS Health campaign we have. We have campaigns against big tech. There's a campaign we're running against the ACLU. Just asking all of these organizations, companies, to you know, really divest themselves of partisanship. Um, really, you know, as you said, get back to neutral when it comes to issues that they choose to engage in and, and, and not engage in issues that don't directly impact their bottom line. People can check out act, the current campaigns we have, past campaigns we have, certainly sign up for email updates. Since coming on board as the organization's president a couple of weeks ago, uh, what I've really seen, guys, something that you mentioned just earlier in this segment, that people like us, we really are the majority. It is a, a, a very loud, woke left that seems to be, and certainly one that I think is enabled by a lot of the, the leftist media, that's getting the lion's share of attention and makes these CEOs, these heads of these corporations and executive directors of nonprofits feel as though they're really the ones in the majority. What New Tolerance Campaign does is we allow a chorus of voices to let CEOs, executive directors, college deans know that we are actually the majority. And there's, there's a, a, tolerant, a true tolerant majority that's out there that really wants to create um, balance in our political discourse, get away from the highly politicized climate in which we live right now. And the way to do that 
is to mm-hmm. get the institutions to change. And that's what we're trying to do at New Tolerance. And the left, the organized left, has had their thumb on the scale for years, if not well, decades. And it's getting decades. worse. They know how this works. They know the pressure points. They've exploited them for a very long time. And Republicans, conservatives, open-minded people, independent people, non-woke people, there's a whole coalition, frankly, that may want to push back against the woke left. I know many people in this audience fall into that category, and they've been craving something that they can actively do, not in this sort of ad hoc way, where from time to time they might find a phone number or an email, or they might, as you say, post something on social media. This is something where they can go in a targeted fashion and take action with other people to try to push back on some significant level and put a thumb on the other end of the scale, if you will. And that's what the new tolerance campaign is about. It's not about turning America into some right-wing place. It's about getting these big institutions to be closer to neutral and to stop caving out of craven fear to the hard left every time by reminding them there's a hell of a lot of us who don't agree with that. It's the New Tolerance campaign, newtolerance.org, newtolerance.org. Their president is Gregory Angelo, my guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Gregory, last word to you. Yeah, I would just say that if you are fed up with cancel culture, if you are tired of uh, the institutions of the United States pushing conservatives and conservatives' thought and speech to the side, Visit our website, NewTolerancecampaign.org. Discover that there are many more people out there like you. Raise your voices together. We are not only a watchdog, we are a force multiplier in this fight, and we are pushing back. I welcome your listeners to join us. NewTolerance.org. I saw our friend and colleague Molly Hemingway was promoting this the other day on Twitter. This is something. People want something. It's not perfect. It's not going to solve every problem, but you have to start somewhere. And I think this is something that is absolutely worth your time and consideration. Just go check them out and see if this is an organization and a mission that you are willing to support with really very little effort. And rather than sitting and stewing and steaming, you can actually do something. And there's a group doing a lot of the heavy lifting for you that just says, here's what we're focusing on. Here's how we're doing it. If you're interested, here's the info. Go forth. And that's the New Tolerance campaign at newtolerance.org. Gregory, Godspeed. Appreciate your work on this. And perhaps we can have you back with some progress reports. Keep me abreast of any successes that you guys have along the way, because hopefully this just grows and grows. You bet, Guy. You ain't seen nothing yet. Mark my word. All right. Gregory Angelo at the New Tolerance campaign, newtolerance.org. Back in a flash. Keep it here. You're listening to Guy Benson. They're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. I saw this video, and it's apparently from some left-wing group. But I wonder, is this a plant? Can this possibly be real? It's a video called The Forever Purge, and it is ostensibly attacking Ron DeSantis in Florida as just, you know, horrible on all things COVID and just uh, a pit of death and sadness and misery. And it features a flight that's flying into Florida, and it's all very scary-seeming. Here's how part of it sounds. Cut 18. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of your cabin crew, we'd like to inform you that we have officially entered Florida airspace. Now that we're making our final descent, 
please watch this short message from Governor Ron DeSantis on COVID-19. Thereafter, everyone on board will be required to comply with the state's forever purge. We are not doing any vaccine passports in the state of Florida. We trust people to make their own decisions in this state. We are not going to be bludgeoning people with restrictions and mandates and lockdowns or any of that stuff. Oh, no. How scary. This Ron DeSantis guy seems awful. Again, this is supposed to be an attack on him. An attack on his leadership. And the quote that they open with is we trust people to make their own decisions. We're not going to be bludgeoning people. And he's cast as the bad guy, apparently. Who did this? Who looked at this and said, yeah, this is good. This is real. This will get him. This will really scare people about Ron DeSantis. Him talking about decisions that folks can make for their own with the government not bludgeoning them. The video goes on, cut 19. As Governor DeSantis stated, while you're within state lines, you do not have to wear a mask. You do not have to get a vaccine. It is against the law for private businesses or schools to mandate masks or vaccines. And you have the absolute right to infect whoever you want, whenever and wherever with COVID-19. Thank you for traveling with us. And please... Enjoy your forever purge. God, this is stupid. It's also not true that it's against the law for private businesses to require masks. That is legal in the state of Florida. So it's inaccurate on top of ham-handed and counterproductive in the demagoguery. Florida is well above average on vaccines, by the way, in the country. You'd never know that from this. But it is so over the top and ridiculous. Again, I wonder, did DeSantis make this? Like, they could play this as a hype video leading into his re-election campaign rallies. It's like, actually kind of makes me want to go back to Florida ASAP watching this. An own goal. What do they call it? A cell phone? By the left? I can imagine DeSantis watching this and laughing. Thanks for the Florida tourism ad. I'm sure the governor is actually pretty grateful. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show upcoming. Grover Norquist will join me talking about the taxes in President Biden's plan, which, of course, overall is on the rocks today. But should they get it or something similar through, keep an eye on your tax bill. It could very well be going up, contrary to the president's promises. We'll talk to Grover about that as soon as we come back. It's the happy hour next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our final hour. Thanks for tuning in. We air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. The podcast is available for free on demand around the clock. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. 
which is fantastic. I'm a fan. We have some chilling at home right now. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where it's sold near you. It's a citrus soda with a premium liquor kick. 21 plus only, please, and always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. Joining us now is Grover Norquist, who's the president of Americans for Tax Reform. And Grover, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Wonderful to be with you. Well, we are all watching sort of pins and needles what's going to happen this afternoon, this evening on Capitol Hill. There are reports in the last few minutes that maybe there's some progress on the whip count for the infrastructure bill. People are still puzzling over what certain senators will accept or not accept on the reconciliation stuff. It's it's a lot of Washington speak. I think a lot of people uh, sort of have their eyes glaze over when we get into the details of it. But there are trillions of dollars on the line, a huge amount of spending coming down the pike potentially. And within that, likely a lot of borrowing. I know they say it's all paid for, but I think that's dubious. There are tax hikes as well. And this is something that you focus on in a lot of your work at Americans for Tax Reform. Let me just start with this big picture as you think about the Democrat-only infrastructure bill to the tune of potentially trillions of dollars What are the top bullet points in your mind for the American people to think about as they consider whether or not this is something they ought to support? Okay, there's $1 trillion uh, in corporate income tax increase. Uh, And the corporate income tax is not a tax on corporations. Corporations don't pay taxes. They collect money from consumers and give it to the government. And sometimes if the taxes are too high, they can't pay their workers as much. Uh, About 70 percent, there are a number of studies, but about 70 percent of that trillion dollars will come right out of the pockets of workers in lower pay. So that's a $700 billion pay cut for Americans over a decade, you know, spread out, not all tomorrow, um, to get theoretically uh, $1 trillion, and they won't raise that much. Uh, But that's a huge, huge hit on working people. You saw when the Republicans cut the uh, corporate income tax that in 2019 alone, the median income, dead center median family income went up $4,400, $4,400 that one year, 2019, uh, a 6.8% increase. And that's when in in 18 and 19, you saw the increase in pay for the bottom half of earners increase more rapidly than the top half. During the Obama years, great for rich people, not so good for middle class and lower income people. The Republican uh, growth fueled by lower corporate taxes did just the opposite. You know, so Grover, Uh, let me just jump in here because I'm really glad that you brought this up. I was planning on asking you about this later in the interview. But since you've gone there, let's just uh, focus and, and linger for a moment. As I've watched Democrats and progressives talk about the spending bill that they've got and, you know, what counts as paid for, and they've got this crazy new thing where they're saying it costs zero dollars if it's paid for. And they're pointing back to the tax reform bill from President Trump and congressional Republicans. Not a single Democrat voted for it back in 2017. They made all sorts of predictions. Armageddon, Frankenstein, people are going to die. It's going to be just widespread misery and horror for the American people. Only the very rich people uh, in this country will benefit from it. Only the big fat cats and corporations will benefit. It's a giant giveaway to rich people, and no one else sees the benefit. They are still repeating those pieces of misinformation to this day. 
as if 2018 and 2019 and the economic boom that was only interrupted by a pandemic never happened, as if tax revenues did not go up after taxes were cut, which was the opposite of what they all predicted. It feels like they are relying on a whole pack of lies and distortions about the tax cut bill from a few years ago to kind of justify what they're trying to do now. Well, they have to. Otherwise, they can't they can't face themselves uh, in, in the morning. Uh, the other part of the tax increase is about a trillion dollars on uh, individuals. But three quarters of that roughly is uh, companies that are called pastors, where somebody starts a business in his backyard and does his own personal income taxes. And he does his earnings and and paying people and so on inside his own uh, personal income taxes, which is why the top rate of 40 percent uh, for quote unquote rich people is actually a tax rate on many small businesses, a great number of small businesses uh, in the country. That also comes out of the pockets of workers and the Democrats. You can't take three and a half trillion dollars from one group of people and give it to another group of people and and get away with thinking you haven't uh, hit quite a few people. Uh, of course, all the efforts to raise energy costs uh, hit middle-income people. There's a $100 billion in cigarette taxes. Average uh, average income of somebody who smokes cigarettes is $44,000 a year, uh, not $400,000. Uh, vapors, mm-hmm. people who are trying to quit smoking, and the Democrats go, hey, if you quit smoking, we won't get our money. So they want to dramatically increase the tax on vaping to keep people smoking. Uh, I mean, when you're really scrounging for, for nickels uh, in the cushions of the, of the sofa, you get pretty disgusting in, in, in where you're poking. And uh, they are willing to push people away from vaping into smoking cigarettes in order to make a buck. Uh, and they know that the people that they tax when, who tax cigarettes, uh, when they tax cigarettes are lower income uh, people. Uh, when you have the corporate income tax, also, that goes directly through utilities onto the utility bills of the American people. And 90% of Americans got a reduction in their utility bills when the Republicans cut the corporate income tax because you legally have to pass on a federal income tax cut through the utility to utility bill payers, okay? And a tax increase goes straight down to those utility bills. Utilities do not pay taxes on utilities. People who have heating and water and, uh, you know, all these various, um, you know, utility projects. uh, Well, and yet, though, and yet, Grover, the president keeps saying that he will not raise taxes one cent on anyone who's making less than 400 grand a year. He said, that's my word as a Biden. It's not going to happen. You just rattled off a number of examples off the top of your head, and we've discussed a few of them here prior as well, that fundamentally disprove the pledge already. Like, we don't have a final bill. We don't know what a final bill will look like or what the top lines will be. But if any number of the pay-fors that you just described in tax increases make it into the final product should one pass, the big promise from the president is going to explode, right? It's gone. These mad scientists and they invent something that really works for a while and then it doesn't, uh, it shrivels up. The Democrats have figured out that they can t- 
tell some say something that isn't true and get elected. Uh, our friend uh, Bill Clinton said he wouldn't tax anybody who made any, more than one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Um, and of course, he did. He had an energy tax he was pushing. And then Obama said two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Nobody makes less than that. There were eight taxes in Obamacare that directly hit the middle class. And then Biden inflation. Four hundred thousand uh, is the promise. Each of these, it worked to get across the finish line because the press and the networks would say he's only going to tax the rich. And unless you were buying ads, you never got any better information in front of the American people. The problem is that when Clinton governed, when Obama governed, and now when Biden is, has power, they raise taxes on lower-income people. And they don't get reelected. They lose the House. They lose the Senate. So they, they've got this... Um, you know, wonderful, magical device that's good enough to get you past the election, but not past the next one. So they're going to have to come back with a different trick for the next election. Right. Although the trick seems to be a similar one over and over again. Oh, don't worry. You're fine. Your taxes won't go up. Only those other people, they'll have their taxes go up. And then all of a sudden, they've got trillions and trillions of dollars of new spending. And I think that's worth underscoring. We're not talking about paying for a bunch of the obligations that we've already made through various government programs, hundreds, I mean, what, tens of trillions of dollars at this point of unpaid for promises. They are piling on top of that, and they're trying to figure out ways to raise revenues to pay for, quote unquote, part of the new spending without addressing any of the old spending or the spending that's already on autopilot that's coming down the pike. And it's just, it's maddening to see them work with this fake math while at the same time trying to pretend that the tax cuts from a few years ago didn't work, didn't deliver on promises, only helped the rich, blew a huge you know, deficit hole, even though, as I mentioned, revenues went up after taxes went down. Spending was the problem there. They just kind of have the talking points that they recycle every couple years in slightly, you know, slightly tweak them it seems to work, Grover, which is why I wanted to have you on the show to just sound the alarm as a clarion call here. They're saying the same thing again. They want to spend trillions. They tell you your taxes won't go up, so you're going to be fine, and all this money really costs zero dollars. I mean, you wonder when people start to get wise to this and recognize, hold on just a second, uh, the fine print is going to matter, and these people aren't trustworthy. I, mean, I think that's my frustration here. Uh, you are right to be frustrated. I think we can see, however, that with Biden's popularity numbers uh, going down, uh, we did some polling with uh, Harris X. Do you think when uh, ta taxes are raised on companies that this will make America less competitive? Yes, overwhelmingly. Do you think it will lead to lower pay for American workers? Yes. Do you believe it will raise prices? Yes. So, People see through, a little late, but people do see through the you're not going to pay for this argument of the Democrats. Biden's popularity numbers are going down. His numbers on taxes and the economy are going down. Should taxes go up? It's ridiculous. We're in a competition with China and the nonviolent part of that competition that we'd like to, to win and that allowed us to outpace the Soviet Union and have them collapse without a bunch of blood on the floor, uh, was to have a stronger economy than the Soviets. And we need to do that with China. And Biden is raising the corporate income tax so high, it will be significantly higher than China's. 
the capital gains tax, if Biden has his way, in the United States, we twice as high on Americans and people who invest in America as on China. These, these are taxes designed to tell somebody with money to invest in Brazil, you know, you invest in Biden's America, they steal a lot more of your stuff than if you invest it in communist China. That's not where we want to be. Oh, and by the way, Europe, Europe. The average corporate income tax in Europe is 19%. 19%. These jerks want to take it when you have the state and local tax, which is 6% corporate income tax average, and add that onto 26 and a half or, or 28, depending on whether it's the House or the president. You're, you're talking over 30%. And on China, they have, a, they have a 15% rate for important industries, for competitive industries, okay? So we're up in the 30s. And China's down at 15 for the stuff that matters. Europe's at 19. And Biden's going to go two years from now, oh, those Benedict Arnold companies that are, you know. Right. It's their fault. Right? It's not our fault. It's not all of our incentives. It's not all of our tax increases. It's not all of our policies. It's just these unpatriotic people reacting to pressures that we've put on them. And I think I'll just we'll end it there with just circling what you just said with a highlighter. Under what the president wants to do and the Democrats are currently debating, they would hike the business tax higher than China's and they would hike the individual tax at the top level up to nearly 40 percent. But that is the rate paid by a lot of small businesses. So, I mean, you can say this will have no impact on anything. It won't impact you. You can listen to the president. There are numerous ways that we can prove preemptively that that will not be true should these policies go through. And I think that's why you're seeing some Democrats a little bit anxious about this and maybe not so eager to spend all of this money and to, quote unquote, pay for it with tax increases that are not only going to hit rich people out at the Hamptons at their third home. That's the rhetoric that they try to use to bamboozle you. It's not the reality. And thanks to people like Grover Norquist, and Americans for Tax Reform, we can prove it. And Grover just showed up here on this show and brought receipts, as we like to say. Grover, appreciate it, and uh, perhaps we'll have you back. I would imagine this fight probably isn't quite over. I I hope it lasts for months. (laughs) Grover Norquist of ATR on The Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, reports trickling out that the White House and congressional leaders are huddling and they're trying to figure out some way to pull this thing out of the fire and get a successful vote probably tonight. I think this might go late. We'll see. But progressives tripling, doubling down. We'll keep an eye on that today and, of course, cover it on the t- on the show tomorrow as well. I do want to bring you an entertainment alert. Oh, Yes. Law and Order, the original, is coming back. I am a fan of the original Law and Order. There have been multiple spinoffs. I think five or six spinoffs through the years. The most successful is SVU, which is still on the air. I haven't watched that in a while. Sort of just started getting insane. But the original is the best, in my opinion. For half the episode, 30 minutes or so, is... The investigation from the detectives, and then the other half is the courtroom drama. Not enough courtroom drama in these other spinoffs from Law & Order. So it ended about 
11 years ago after a long run on NBC. But Dick Wolf, the executive producer, has announced that it's coming back. I just learned this last night at dinner and got far too excited. Now, what we don't know for Law & Order fans is who's going to be on the show. I would imagine the character Jack McCoy, Sam Waterston, the actor, they'll probably bring him back in some capacity. I mean, he was a face on that show for almost the entire run as a prosecutor than a district attorney. On the police side, I don't know. Maybe Anita Van Buren, will that character be back? I think she's still around. Jerry Orbach as Lenny Briscoe. Unfortunately, of course, they can't reprise that character because he passed away, but he was sort of the the classic Law & Order detective. I think Anthony Anderson... Uh, Anthony Anderson was a detective on Law & Order for a while. It's been 11 years since it went off the air. So more details to come, they say, on, you know, the the date of the return, casting announcements. I'm just excited. As a fan of the original Law & Order, it's coming back, and I could not resist mentioning it here in the happy hour because it makes me happy. All right, we're going to take a break. More of the happy hour when we come back as we also continue to monitor discussions here in Washington. A potential vote later tonight, maybe, maybe not. Even Speaker Pelosi isn't quite sure, it would seem. Stay with us. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad you're here. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. At the start of today's program, we welcome back Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin. Always enjoy chatting with him up in Cheeseland. We had a lot to talk about with him today, including Afghanistan. He's a veteran himself. He's been very outspoken on these issues. Here's part of my discussion with Representative Mike Gallagher. All right, I would like to talk about Afghanistan with you, and we will get to that in a moment. But first, your reaction to what we are seeing play out today in Congress It's not really a lot of drama around this continuing resolution and keeping the government funded. That seems basically like a fait accompli. However, on the infrastructure bill, which passed the Senate on a bipartisan basis, Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, has called a vote today. She gave a press conference earlier, and I'll play some of the sound later this hour, saying they are moving forward with that plan. But the votes do not really look like... They are lining up the way that Democratic leadership would need to get that passed out of the House, which could really unleash a bunch of chaos for the entire Biden agenda. What are you watching today, Congressman? What do you predict is going to happen based on what you're seeing as a Republican in your vantage point on Capitol Hill? Well, I uh, to quote Yogi Berra, I never make predictions about the future, uh, but um, yeah, I think the continuing resolution will pass, even though I don't support continuing resolutions. I voted against them even when we were in charge. I think it's a failure of the budget process. Um, But it will likely pass because this is what Congress likes to do, wait till the last second and then just pass CRs. I don't know if we're going to have a vote on what's called the BIF, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework, because we basically have been locked in this game of chicken between the so-called Democratic moderates and the progressives in the Democratic caucus, and neither side wants to budge. And so let's say Nancy Pelosi put the bipartisan infrastructure framework on the floor later tonight and just called the vote. 
if all the progressives, which number between 30 and 50 members, held their vote because they want to force the caucus to support the bigger uh, reconciliation bill, I don't think there's enough Republicans that support the infrastructure bill to offset their votes. So until they can get the numbers they need to pass, and they can't afford to lose more than three, uh, I don't see how that passes. And remember, she promised the moderate caucus, she promised uh, Congressman Gottheimer and others that she would put the infrastructure bill on the floor a few days ago. And then she extended yeah, the deadline, week. but she made them an explicit promise that they were going to get a vote on it. So, you know, well, but hang I on, though, Congressman, it's 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 worth pointing out. She also promised the progressives that she wouldn't call for a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure framework until after the Senate had passed the reconciliation bill. So she's made a lot of promises and they've shifted. And I think both sides, both of these sort of groups within her caucus and these camps have heard things from her that feel like airtight promises and they are mutually exclusive. She cannot keep all of these promises like logistically she can't. Yeah, I don't see how it works with that narrow of a margin. And, and she's, it's not just the progressives are trying to put pressure on the moderates in the House. They're basically trying to pressure Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema into submitting. And thus far, Manchin seems to be holding firm. Now, what concerns me is that he'll say, OK, I don't support a three point five trillion dollar bill, but I support a two point five or a, a two point oh trillion dollar bill. And then everyone can claim they they got what they wanted and we'll still be left with bad progressive policy and a bunch of spending we don't need. But I don't know. It, it, you're right. Pelosi's made a lot of promises and I'm not sure she can keep all of them. I will say, however, a note of caution, I have in the past uh, underestimated her ability to force compliance from her members. She seems to have a remarkable knack for forcing people to vote her way. Uh, but I just don't see how this gets done. So my ultimate prediction is the CR passes and then they punt on the bigger infrastructure versus reconciliation decision. And yeah. she tries to work the problem over the next two weeks. And we come back, you know, on December 18th or uh, right, they try again. And they see if they it might look a there. little, it might get a little different or, you know, look different. The numbers could come down and massage the thing, ongoing conversations. That's sort of where I am right now. I appreciate, by the way, that you said that you don't make predictions. Then you made a prediction. So thank you for doing that, Congressman. We'll write that down. A uh, gold star for you for going out there. Although, again, I, I think it's a pretty reasonable prediction that you've just laid out. Last question before we get back. Uh, to the issue that I teased earlier, Afghanistan, a hugely important one. When you stand back and you look at the Democratic Party, the Democratic leadership, they've been whipping votes, they've been working the phones, they are hopeful, and you alluded to this, that there will be enough Republicans who might go along with the bipartisan infrastructure bill to make up for some of the Democrats, the progressives that they could lose, and maybe get this thing across the finish line I am not dead set against the bipartisan bill. I see arguments in favor of it. I see arguments against it. I think that there's a reasonable disagreement that people can have on the right side of the aisle about that bill. However, I'm not sure I'm sold on Republicans lending their votes to Speaker Pelosi, given all of the struggles that she's having right now. Why would any Republican vote in favor of this bill and basically toss a life preserver to Democratic leadership right now, unless the argument is, look, it's on balance, decent legislation from their perspective, so they're not going to let politics uh, 
you know, dictate their their ultimate voting decision. But it seems like Pelosi would never let her people give Republicans the last few votes they needed on a contested issue where the majority party was in turmoil. Right. That's that's sort of where I'm wondering how Republicans are going to play this. That full interview with Congressman Gallagher available online. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every single day, on demand, no charge to you. And it's available around the clock, of course. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a big day here at the D.C. Bureau of Fox News, a ribbon-cutting ceremony, some dedications. It is really awesome what they've done to this place. New digs. And a story from yesterday's show where things went slightly awry. You probably didn't notice. We hope you didn't. But behind the scenes, uh, a bit of chaos was unleashed. We'll explain it all straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. From our gleaming new Washington, D.C. Fox News Bureau, which was officially opened and christened today. Ribbon-cutting ceremony, a little walk around, a few dedications. So the green room down the hall from us is named after Charles Krauthammer, who held forth in the old green room many, many days and was so generous with his time and was a staple on the panel on Special Report. And we lost him a few years ago And I cannot think of someone more fitting to honor in this way than Charles Krauthammer. So it's the Charles Krauthammer Green Room. And then you come literally, what, 30 feet down the hallway. And and here we are in the Tony Snow radio studio. Tony Snow was a colleague here at Fox News. I actually worked as a White House intern when he was at the White House as press secretary. Just as he was on his way out, he was stricken with cancer, and he was beloved by the staff. I remember his farewell. Very emotional day on the steps of the Eisenhower Executive Office Building on West Exec. There were not many dry eyes. Tony was the anchor of Fox News Sunday for years and was just beloved here as well at Fox News. And he had a radio studio, our old radio studio here in the building. It was initially built for him and his show. And so when we launched Benson and Harf, Marie Harf and I had the idea to colloquially name the studio after him. And we asked Fox about it. They said, let's actually make it official because Tony and I had worked. Of course, I was an intern, but we had been in the Bush administration. We were fellow conservatives, but he was also a spokesperson at the White House. Marie has a background in being a spokesperson in the executive branch. So it just kind of felt fitting. And this brand new studio that we're operating in is now officially named after him. There's a beautiful plaque just outside the door. We're going to post photos and videos of all of this at Guy P. Benson on Twitter and Instagram. If you're curious, there's a really lovely, big, beautiful, bold painting of Tony Snow right across the glass. I'm looking at it right now in the portion of our studio where Wyatt is sitting, where the producers are, it's a Penley painting. You might be familiar with him. He does a lot of work with Fox, actually, and they have captured the likeness perfectly. 
the colors really pop under the lights. Check it out, at Guy P. Benson on Twitter and Instagram. We'll also share it from our official account, at Guy Benson Show, on both platforms, Twitter and Instagram, if you're curious. And we'll give you a little tour of our digs. We did kind of a little bit of that a few weeks ago, but now it's all officially official as of today. And I can hardly believe that this space, this entire workspace, is the same physical location as the old bureau because almost every single square inch is totally different. The word I keep using because it applies is unrecognizable in the best way. It's just modern and clean and the way it's laid out makes so much sense and we are just blessed to be right in the middle of it. We are right in between the hair and makeup room and the green room and then the main studio where Brett Bayer and Chris Wallace and company do their shows. And then down the other hallway is where Tucker and Laura and Howie Kurtz and others host their shows. It's really cool. And uh, we're blessed to have this studio named after Tony Snow. And just to be a part of the operation here, I will say that because everything is so new, you know, you have to work out a few kinks from time to time. And yesterday was one of those days. It was during our first hour, our third segment, so right around 3.50-ish p.m. Eastern time. And I was just wrapping up a monologue about Nancy Pelosi and the struggle she had on her hands in terms of uh, wrangling all the votes for reconciliation, sort of previewing that. And I was very close to sending it to break. And all of a sudden, I could no longer hear myself in my headphones here. And I wondered, had my headphone jack come unplugged what had happened i looked up wyatt was looking at me through the glass what's happening he couldn't hear me i couldn't hear any response from new york so i tried to just send it to commercial break they couldn't hear me but luckily they were on the same wavelength they sent it to commercial break and we could not figure out what was going on my microphone just wasn't working there was an issue it looked like with the board here in dc the audio board not to get too technical, but the microphones in this part of the studio couldn't stay in programming. It was it was really weird. So Wyatt and I were like, what do we do? We have to come back from a commercial break in three minutes or something. What do we do? And then we've got the rest of the show. We've got Senator Ernst coming up live in minutes. Now, the good news is, as a parenthetical, producer Christine was out yesterday. She was working from home because her daughter – needed child care. Their babysitter had to call out at the very last minute. So she was working from home. Producer Christine, whom we love very much, under pressure is, how can I say this? Not level-headed, right? A little something would go wrong or a big something in this case could go wrong. And producer Christine would be screaming at the top of her lungs, panicking, dousing herself in gasoline, And looking for a match like this is sort of how she would react to even a minor setback. So the fact that she was not a part of this, in fact, she was blissfully unaware listening to the show. If you did not know what was happening behind the scenes, we had maybe four seconds of dead air on the entire show yesterday. You would have no idea because of the calm, collected professionalism of this team with Dan and Justin back in New York, Wyatt here in D.C. So Wyatt and I, there's on the exact opposite end of this building. On our floor, about as far away as you can possibly get from where I sit and still remain in the bureau, there is a voiceover studio, like a little cubby hole 
almost like a closet where you can go in and do voiceovers. Luckily, it is connected into the radio system and up to New York. So that was the backup plan. We gathered a few things and basically ran because we didn't make this decision instantly. We were still trying to see, can we make the microphone work? Is there something obvious that we're not seeing? And we said, nope, we're out of time. So we were doing sort of the very urgent fast walking. It was like a power walk slash jog without trying to freak anyone out with like equipment and headphones and a laptop and all this stuff. We get into this little room. And Wyatt pulls up the thing, and there's headphones, and they're sort of crackling, and these are old-school headphones. I can barely hear New York, and then we pull up the levels just a little bit, and it is bumper music. So we are back. The segment is back. I am live on radio from this closet, basically, on the other side of the building, and I just launched into the segment. We played a clip, I believe, a soundbite of Cocaine Mitch McConnell. You can go back and hear this on the podcast if you want to at GuyBensonShow.com. Now you know the chaos that had ensued here on our end, but we tried to keep it pretty chill. So we did the segment. We were able to get Senator Ernst on the air, no problem. And just the rest of the show, our segments were done with me sitting in this little room. The only distraction at that point was, again, everything is so new here. Someone had set up the lighting, like the overhead lighting in this voiceover room to be on a timer. Right, and it and it will click off if they don't detect or the little machine, the sensor doesn't detect movement, the lights will click off. And I don't know why this happened, but it was a thirty second timer. So every thirty seconds the lights would turn off where I was sitting. <laughs> and it would make this clicking sound, which I could hear, which was driving me crazy. And in order to turn the lights back on, because it was not total darkness, but close. I would have to wave my arms around like a crazy person to get the sensor to recognize there's someone in this little booth and then the lights would click back on. So if you want to go back and listen to that interview with Senator Ernst, we're talking about Afghanistan and the hearing yesterday and all this stuff. Just imagine every few seconds, right, every minute or so, I am wildly waving my arms around to get the lights to turn back on. (laughs) So it was a whole thing. And it ended up working out great in the end, and we sort of made it work on the fly with some ingenuity, no panic, got it done, figured out and resolved the issue, and then the place got dedicated today, and it looks absolutely fantastic. And again, if you want to see photos or videos, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram, at Guy P. Benson, my personal accounts, I'll post it there as well, including this really gorgeous striking Penley oil painting of Tony Snow after whom this studio is named. And it is truly an honor and a privilege to broadcast in a place this beautiful named after someone that I admired. Tomorrow, I'll be doing the broadcast from Omaha, Nebraska, from our great affiliate out there. I cannot wait. We'll explain why I'm there on tomorrow's show. We've got a great lineup, including... Five for fighting. They will be here. John Andrasik, the lead singer on The Guy Benson Show, cannot wait for that conversation. You do not want to miss it. That's the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. In the meantime, have a great evening. Thank you for listening.
Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.